Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you touch a hot stove as a kid, and ouch, that hurts, what your mind's job is is to remind you of how much a hot stove hurts so that you don't do that again. It's your mind's job to keep that pain alive as a warning to you. Now, the mind doesn't distinguish between a hot stove and heartbreak or any failure that's painful. And so our mind's job is to keep reminding us of how painful it is so that we don't do that quote-unquote mistake again. Hello and welcome to season five of the Not Perfect podcast with me, your host, Poppy Jamie, the founder of award-winning mindfulness app, Happy Not Perfect. This show is about giving you a pause to nurture and nourish your mind, body, and soul. Each week, I speak to world experts, authors, scientists, and inspirational leaders to share their wisdom for us to learn new perspectives, challenge our thinking, optimize our life, health and together know we can let go of perfect and still embrace our hopes wishes and dreams join me on the journey and a special thank you to mindstream for providing music that helps you sleep relax move or focus you can find their music on any music platforms just search mindstream let's crack into today's show This week, I'm speaking to the formidable Guy Winch, a psychologist and author of best-selling books, Emotional First Aid, How to Fix a Broken Heart, and The Squeaky Wheel, Complaining the Right Way to Get Results. His books have been translated into 26 languages, and you may have watched one of his viral TED Talks that have been viewed over 18 million times. He is the co-host of hit podcast, Dear Therapists, with Laurie Gottlieb, who was on the podcast a few weeks ago in as a complete goddess. It is such an honor to have Guy on the podcast as we dive into broken hearts, emotional first aid, and how to look after our psychological health better. This episode is full of tips, tricks, tools, teachings, 
I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed recording it. Thank you, Guy. What is a favorite quote you return to often? Well, I know this probably is not good that I'm going to use one of my own, but I am just because it's one that I like and I do return to it often. And that is that the human mind might be the most complex piece of machinery in the universe, but it requires adult supervision. In other words, we need to have a overview of what's going on and what our impulses in and what our thoughts are because our thoughts are not truth our feelings are not necessarily truth our impulses are not necessarily truth we actually have to apply our own knowledge and reason and truly supervise our basic instincts and i think that's something that we that we all need to take into account what's a life lesson you've been reminded of recently I think it's one we've all been reminded of recently, and that is how quickly we adapt to big change. In the sense of, I remember when the shutdown started, the first night, you know, it was like, oh my God, what's happening? And then by a week, it was like, okay, I'm really kind of getting into the rhythm of it. And, and, and I think we've all been through so many changes lately. Some people are better with change than others, but for me, it's like, we are adaptable creatures. We fundamentally adapt. And so even though it seems Herculean, maybe at times, uh, the task, uh, we will we'll adapt to it. It'll seem less foreign and less difficult very quickly. Yes, and I totally agree. How do you define happiness? So the thing about happiness is that it's a relative term. Happiness used to be a big uh, research uh, thing in psychology, people trying to research, like, how do you make people happy? But happiness is relative. It's relative to your baseline. So you actually can't be happy all the time because happiness is relative to where you typically are. So by definition, you have to have something exceptional happen or something unusual happen to kind of boost past your norm in terms of, of happiness. So as psychologists, we look more to things like life satisfaction, which uh, can be a constant. But to me, what defines happiness is the optimization of emotional well-being. Mm. In other words, when, and it doesn't mean peak optimization, but it means like when emotionally uh, you are in a good place, that is usually when you are happiest and that's usually when you're most efficient, productive, satisfied and, and all of it. I love that. And what I also love is that all your work is a kind of a guidebook to optimize your emotional well-being. You're the one person, like lots of people do it, but you do it in such a, a digestible way. I'm going to dive into your first book now, because mm-hmm. if I could give every 13-year-old one book to keep with them for their entire life, and I really don't say this lightly, it would be this book, How to Fix a Broken Heart. And it's small, it's tiny, and it's jam-packed with everything you need to know and a a kind of a rope out of when you're heartbroken you're just swimming in the worst emotions so firstly why are heartbreaks so painful and what is happening in the brain for this feeling to be there so heartbreaks are ridiculously painful if you think about it and this is kind of what drew me to it there is no other life experience that we have that can take someone who doesn't have any psychological problems necessarily who's very even keeled and make them feel completely crazy and make them act sometimes completely crazy and make them and bring them to their knees to the point where they can't even function and get out of bed. Grief can do that sometimes, but in grief, we are just 
incapacitated by the sadness, we don't act crazy, quote unquote. Um, but heartbreak does that. It is the most devastatingly impactful and painful thing we can feel on the one hand. And on the other hand, it's really marginalized. In other words, I don't know anyone who goes to work and says, oh, my girlfriend just dumped me, so I need the day off. That's not a good career move for most people. Or my boyfriend just dumped me. It's just not a good career move. So it's not really sanctioned as much as it should be. And yet, it is incredibly painful because what happens when a heart is broken is we go through a kind of withdrawal in the brain. You see the same thing happening in the brain as when we feel significant, significant physical pain. And when we're withdrawing at the same time from opioids or cocaine, in other words, the brain is going haywire. It's in massive withdrawal and it's in massive pain in combination. And you also uh, talk about how a heartbreak, for example, can lower your IQ. It can reduce your immune system. What are some of the impacts of heartbreak? So pain does that, right? I mean, when, when you're in physical pain, it's a, it's a huge distraction, like it's very difficult to concentrate. And what we know about emotional pain, like heartbreak, is that it mimics in the brain physical pain so much that the researchers say things like the emotional pain pathways piggyback on the pathways of physical pain. They literally ride them. It's a very similar mechanism in the brain. So when you're experiencing a lot of pain, emotional, physical it's going to be very hard to focus, to concentrate. Yes, you're going to have a hit to your IQ, to your executive functioning in that way um, is one thing. It's, going to, it's massively hurtful to your self-esteem because it, our mind will take us to, if I were only this, if I were only more of that, less of this, if I hadn't done this, if I had done that, if it, you know, like if it was someone else, they would have stayed. They would have, it, it goes to this place where it must be our faults, our demerits, our shortcomings that caused it because we seek to find an explanation. So there's one, I just wasn't enough in some way. Somebody else would have been. That's very damaging to our self-esteem. Um, it, it really shifts our sense of identity because we define ourselves in our relationships and by our relationships. And to the extent that we were in love with someone and in a relationship with them or just had very strong feelings towards someone, then we define ourselves by that love. It's what we think about. It's what we preoccupy ourselves with. It's how we organize our thoughts and our day and our schedule and the things we do. All of that gets taken away suddenly and you're left with, so wait, so who am I without this? And what do I do without this? And what do my weekends look like without this? So there are all these voids. All our routines and habits get shifted because they were all tied in to the other person. So it is an assault if you think about it, on every aspect of your emotional and practical life. And that's why it hurts so much. It's a really severe psychological assault to be heartbroken. To talk about that, um, the, the mind filling in the blanks, why is it that we consistently need to fill in blanks? We hate uncertainty. It's part of our psychological makeup. We do not like uncertainty. It's anxiety provoking. It means, in other words, we feel more comforted with a, with a more certain world because we know what to predict. Dangers don't come at us from unexpected places and unexpected times. So when we are lacking in information, we're likely to fill it in because the, we don't like uncertainty and we do like meaning. We have a need, an innate need to understand our experience in the world and what happens around us. And to figure out why. And, and so our mind is constantly looking to explain a why. And in the absence of information, it will come up 
with information the best it can, uh, and maybe not the best it can, but the most automatic it can. Often that's not the best for us at all, but the most automatic way to fill in the gaps. Um, and it doesn't do that in a way that's actually very useful for us, but, but we will fill in a lot of gaps with a lot of information that is probably not true and probably sometimes even harmful. And you talk about the dangers of um, kind of engaging in behaviors like stalking your ex on Instagram, um, which did give me a giggle because I feel like who isn't vulnerable to doing that. And and there's one line which I thought was so beautiful, like broken hearts are engines of endless psychological paradox. We want nothing more than to end our emotional pain, yet we indulge thoughts and behaviors that only deepen it. Mm-hmm. How do you kind of curb yourself from needing to go on Instagram to stalk or like how do you... I guess, kind of like lessen that paradox that we find ourselves in? So first of all, we have to recognize that the impulse to do that is incredibly, incredibly strong. I would say if anyone who's used to be a smoker and tried to quit smoking or a drinker tried to quit drinking, that feeling of craving of like, oh, I really want that cigarette, I really want that drink, whatever it is, it's a craving, it's very, very strong. The problem is, Part of us might know it's maybe not a good idea. We maybe haven't articulated why it's not a good idea. By the way, why it's not a good idea is because your job when you're heartbroken and getting over the heartbreak is to weaken the associations in your neural network to your ex so that not every thought you have you have leads directly to your ex. Oh, toothpaste. Oh, they use that toothpaste. But you know what I mean? In other words, all roads lead in your associations to the ex and because you've been thinking about them so much and we strengthen those neural networks by thinking about them. So every time you think about your ex, you're actually strengthening the associations that you wish to weaken. It's absolutely the the opposite of what you should be doing. Now, the compulsion to do that is very strong. So what you need to do in that moment is A, recognize that's not going to be useful. B, block yourself from doing it. So when I'm saying unfollow, unfriend, delete, 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 it's so that it just introduces speed bumps. It's a little bit more difficult to go onto Instagram if you're not following that account or their cousin or their best friend or their high school teacher or whoever else <laughs> you're going to use to see what's going on with them. And, and so make it more difficult, but then be use distraction. Take, you know, distract yourself by doing something that's actually going to be useful for you. That's going to actually move you forward. And that might be, you know what, I'm going to go rearrange that closet. So it looks different than it did when they were living here with me, or I'm going to go and pick out paint for that wall so I can make the place look a little bit different and not associate as much uh, with that person. Or, or I'm going to call a friend and, and get in touch again with somebody who I had lost touch with because of the relationship. So like if you can replace the impulse to stalk, to follow up, to reinforce an association that you're trying to weaken with something that actually moves you forward independently without that person, that would be the best approach. So do you recommend actually um, people talking, try to, I mean, prevent themselves from talking about it so much? Because obviously some advice says that, yes, talk to your friends about it. Talking's really good. But surely if you're going to all your friends and talking about the same breakup, you're reinforcing those neural pathways. Right. So here's the thing. There's a balance between getting emotional support and falling into a ruminative pattern. So it depends when. At the beginning, by all means, get emotional support. The goal of talking to friends is twofold. It's number one, to get emotional validation and support from them. And number two, to get a better understanding, to get the closure in that, to process the grief of the loss. Those two things are important. But if six months after a breakup, 
you were going to the same friends and telling the same story. And I, I definitely know people who six months after a breakup will call a friend and go like, but I just don't understand why. And you've said that a hundred times. And there's no new understanding to be gained from asking that question. It's just repetitive. So when you hear yourself voicing the same things to the same people or even the same things to different people over and over and over again, that's a sign that you're no longer gleaning new information from that discussion. And so it's probably not a useful conversation to have. You can still get the emotional support by just being with someone and saying, look, I don't want to talk about it, but I am just feeling sad, so I wanted to hang out, which is fine. And then just by being with someone, you can get the emotional support. You don't have to get it by repeating the same talking points over and over again. And so when you hear yourself repeating something too many times, understand that that means you're not going to learn anything new from talking about it, that you need to perhaps let that piece of it go and refocus on getting emotional support and on moving forward independently. This really links to kind of what you said. There's this one line that really stuck out for me. And you said, uh, there is no breakup explanation that's going to feel satisfying. No rationale can take away the pain you feel. And I thought this was just so like, so profoundly and succinctly said around like a breakup rationale. Do you encourage people then just to create the, the most likely understanding or most beneficial understanding of situation and then continue to remind themselves of that one that they have come to at the beginning? Yes, I think that's really important because look, most breakups come down to the following. Either it was about them, that they weren't ready, they had commitment issues, they fell out of love, they were emotionally distant, they blah, 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 blah. Or the chemistry wasn't enough, the compatibility wasn't enough. I know so many couples who broke up and you could see it was a bit of a squeeze to begin with. It just weren't that in sync, they weren't that compatible. There were too many compromises going on and then or somebody drifted emotionally, didn't alert you in time that they were drifting, you didn't notice until they kind of just fell out of love and that's done. It's usually that, it's very rarely that this habit of yours that you've had for five years suddenly became so difficult that they needed to break up or that there's one thing you said to their mother was so offensive that they kind of figured out, okay, if you're gonna talk that way to my mom, I mean, you wouldn't know that if that were the case because everything would happen in a sequence. So it's usually the incompatibility, the timing, the chemistry, something's going on with them. It's not very satisfying. Do you know what I mean? It's not, oh, some kind of major conspiracy or this one moment that you can then maybe undo if you apologize for it. It's not that. And so to the extent um, that you're going to spend so many hours trying to figure out what the thing is when it's usually not one thing and it's not one thing you can do anything about regardless, it's much more useful to say they fell out of love okay, I wish they would have alerted me that's happening. Maybe we could have done something about it too late now because they're not in love, they've moved on, or they had commitment issues or they had loyalty issues or whatever it is, and period. Because that's 90% of it. You're never quite going to know the other 10%. No one's going to sit and tell you, you know how when you have soup, it's very noisy and I can't be with somebody who's a slurper. (laughs) It's not going to happen. You're not going to hear that. And hopefully you shouldn't hear that all your little things that like, it's not about that. So trying to figure that out or the grand conspiracies or what they would have said to somebody when and why didn't they tell you, it's not useful. And, and I wanted to say one more thing about why we get so drawn into that because, um, and I've written about this before, that all, all breakups, 90 something percent of them, if not all, are blind sides. And that includes the one in which you had an argument a month before in which you threatened to break up with each other and includes the one in which you've had multiple breakups. 
it's always a blind side because when somebody breaks up a relationship, they do it when it's convenient for them to do it. Some people do it very impulsively, but most people do it in a thoughtful way. And the thoughtful way is, well, I have this business trip coming up, so let me just do that and then I'll do it afterwards. So we had this vacation planned and I still like her. And so I can go on the vacation and then I'll do it after, or it's her birthday coming up. I don't want to do it then, or it's my birthday coming up. I want to do it before. In other words, there are all these reasons. And then people kind of play the game until they're ready. So they've been cooking it. They've been preparing themselves. They've been, you know, disinvesting from the relationship. You find out in a moment, they tell you. And then to you, it's like, but how can that be when last week everything was great? It wasn't great. They were acting as though it were because they didn't want to tell you last week and they still like you. And so they didn't want to be you know, nasty about it, but it wasn't great. They were just not telling you last week. And we tend to think, but I know they said lovely things to me last week. What happened in this past week? Nothing. It was mm -hmm. just when they planned it. And so it's such an easy rabbit hole to go down because it's so tempting to think back on all the contradictions of how this breakup could happen when all these things happened the weeks before that didn't imply it. Yes, because that's what people do. They, they, they hold it to themselves until they're ready. You carefully choose your words in a really interesting way. And I noticed through all your writing and your talks, you use stuff like heartbreak is a battle. You have to fight for good mental health. And I really appreciate the, 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 the language that you use because I think some of this conversation, everyone can be so light about it. And it's, these emotions are really, really, really tough. Like it's not easy, as you said, to feel happy. It's not easy to kind of keep good mental health and you really kind of help communicate that. Was that kind of on purpose and what are your thoughts about the words you, you use? Absolutely. In other words, to me, part of the failing of some of the people who, who talk in the space is that they are saying to people, like, for example, when I say no contact, like don't follow them on social media, don't you know, look at the photos, don't look at all the texts. I use the example of, and that is as difficult as not smoking when you quit smoking. The cravings are intense because if you don't tell people, this is what you need to do. And by the way, it is really, really difficult. Then people approach it without girding themselves sufficiently, without that kind of mindset. And then they fail and then they think, oh, I'm weak. It's me. It's not you. It's a very, very difficult task. It's not you that you feel this devastated. It is that devastating a thing. And even if you don't think the circumstance was, that's how our brain reacts regardless. So yes, it feels that devastating for a reason. I think it's really important for people to understand that, that a lot of emotional health is us, that's what I was saying earlier, like disengaging the autopilot and purposefully, intentionally trying to direct our minds and our thoughts and our actions in a certain direction where it's counterintuitive, which is against the tide, which is actually very difficult to do. And, and here's just one example of very difficult. People talk about um, mindfulness meditation. I, I'm actually all for it. It is really difficult. Mm. It is really, and, and people don't understand, like, like when you're going to do that for the first time, good luck getting past 15 seconds, not 15 minutes. And, and I've spoken to people and like there's one woman, she was, she was Japanese actually. And, and she said to me like, I'm failing at meditation and I'm Japanese. I just feel like so bad. And I'm like, how is that related to you being Japanese? And she goes, well, because, you know, so many people around me meditate, I'm supposed to be able to do it. And I'm like, that's like saying so many people around you fly planes and you're supposed to know how to do that. Like, no, no, no. It's a lot of training and a lot of hours and a lot of practice. And, and so it's important for people to know that emotional health is not cheap. It is extraordinarily effortful, 
but you need to know that to be able to engage on that journey. So knowing that it's a battle is important. Knowing this is really hard is important. Recognizing it's really painful is important. I've yet to meet anyone, I don't think, who's a kind of a daily meditator because it is it's hard. really tough to yes. keep that. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to talk about the idolization process um, because, mm-hmm. again, you write about it in such a great but also amusing way. And it really did make me laugh because I kind of repaint my exes as if they're Greek gods and feel kind of like lucky I even had a conversation with them, let alone relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, why do we idolize? Why do we put people on pedestals? And how do we mitigate this? So, look, in, in part, what happens is when you touch a, a hot stove as a kid, and ouch, that hurts. What your mind's job is, is to remind you of how much a hot stove hurts so that you don't do that again. In other words, right, and that makes sense, right? You, 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 you don't want to forget that the stove was painful to touch so that you don't touch it again. So your mind has to keep reminding you, oh, remember that? Oh, remember you touched that stove? Remember that finger still hurts because of it? It's your mind's job to keep that pain alive as a warning to you. Now, the mind doesn't distinguish between a hot stove and heartbreak, um, or any goal, or any failure that's painful. And so our mind's job is to keep reminding us of how painful it is, so that we don't do that quote-unquote mistake. Again, only in this case, we do want to make the mistake again. We want to be able to get over that person so we can fall in love with someone else. But to that extent, they will keep flashing on the best moments, and you'll have these snapshots and memories of, oh, we were so happy, and it could have been so great, and, 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 and it, it does that because there's something very bittersweet about that. It kind of reminds you on the one hand, and it's incredibly painful. On the other, it's part of how we process the grief of loss is by remembering all those good things, but they're also extraordinarily painful, and part of that is we tend to idealize. And Again, this is how our mind is taking us in one direction when we need to drag ourselves in the other because it's much more useful to actually think about all the ways in which we weren't compatible, all the moments that were hardly ideal, all the times we thought I really should break up because this person's driving me crazy um, or upsetting me or not for me, all the ways the relationship uh, was dissatisfying, all the compromises we had to make that we kind of you know, really didn't want to make. That is a much more useful thing to think about when we're trying to get over someone but our mind will drag us into like oh do you remember how amazing that was and it idealizes suddenly that weekend where we spent half of it arguing and only the second half got better it was like oh that was a magical weekend no you were in tears for all of saturday it wasn't magical at all i really liked your tip about having a notes page on your phone where you're actually able to note down all the things that weren't so good about the relationship so in those moments of kind of romanticizing what was you can kind of remind yourself. There is a principle there that I'm applying here, but I apply in many other places, which I want people to know. And that principle is that your mind will introduce the negative stuff. Your mind will introduce the unuseful stuff, like the idealizing, and it will introduce the painful stuff, like thinking about that harsh thing they said to you during the breakup. And your mind will introduce negative catastrophic thoughts, say, or pessimistic thoughts in different situations. It's very difficult to block that. What we can do, and that's the point of this phone list, is to insert intentionally a counterbalance. So the point of having a list on your phone of all the compromises and the drawbacks of the person and the relationship and the time with them is that when you go to the idealizing thoughts and your mind will take you there and you'll catch it midway, then 
you can balance that out by reminding yourself actively, nope, let me go to my list and remind myself that, yeah, there was that part of the weekend, but there was the other part of the weekend. And yes, they were great at X, but they terrible at Y. You know? And so that's one way we counterbalance. When we have one big anxiety thought of, what if I don't find love again? That's going to appear naturally. We can purposefully insert, and we should, I can just as equally think about how quickly I might find love again or how much better the next love will be. If your mind goes to the thought of, oh, what if my relative gets sick from coronavirus or from something and I'm so worried about them um, just because of anxiety, you can also go to, and what if actually they're fine and what if they live, you know, to 103? Uh, that's also a possibility. So like to counter the negative, pessimistic, hurtful, um, unproductive, messages that our mind will introduce, we can intentionally, purposefully balance them out by forcing in the opposite and the balancing thoughts, which in this case for idealizing is, here are the shortcomings, let's do a review every time I think of the idealizing, that will balance out the reality. So you've had 25 years um, clinical experience, like helping thousands of people with their lives. Do people react to heartbreak in the same way or do you actually see a varied response? And is there a difference between how men and women respond to heartbreak in general terms? There are two levels of response. There's what your experience is inside and what you manifest outwardly to others and how you respond, you know, and how you, how you conduct yourself. And assuming it's real heartbreak, right? Not just like, oh, I wasn't that invested in the person and they broke up, so I don't care. If it's real heartbreak, the experience inside is very, very similar across genders, across ages, across cultures. It's devastating equally to all and painful equally to all across ages, across, and again, this all depends on the meaning of that relationship for you, the context of your life, what else is going on. There are a lot of variables that determine how individually painful it is for a person that are context and situation specific. But generally speaking, our emotional DNA is very similar. So our emotional experience internally, what we feel is very, very similar. Now, you might get like three people who are getting this really sharp pain because of heartbreak. And one of them is saying to themselves or outwardly like, oh my God, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. I'm a wreck. I'm barely managing. Another one might say outwardly, fine, then I don't care. Now, of course they do. They're in terrible pain, but that's their approach outwardly. And the third person is just going to be something like, well, I'm just so angry. I hate everyone and I hate the world. So here's one person who's very, very upset. Here's one person who's trying to compartmentalize and numb themselves. And here's another person who's very, very angry. So that might be, and there are many more varieties than that, right? So the, the how we respond to that pain can be, is individual can differ, but what we're experiencing inside is the same. Um, in terms of the outwardly experience of, of expression of it or, or how men and women uh, behave differently, when it's heartbreak, in the real flows of heartbreak, it's really similar. The fact that men are socialized to externalize emotions and women are sometimes socialized to internalize them and those general sweeping generalization that doesn't apply to any one individual, might mean that you might see men externalizing blame or externalizing anger to others or in some way and women internalizing and feeling more upset and depressed. But the men are going to go through issues with their self-esteem. The men are going to go through a lot of, you know, like sad and weepy moments as well. And the women are going to have their moments where they're very, very angry. And again, these are generalizations. You, individuals don't, don't count in generalizations. We all respond individually. So that's much more common 
than different. In other words, in the throes of heartbreak, if you just see someone respond and take away their gender in some kind of application, um, it will look similar, I think, uh, more than different. So your TED Talks have had over 18 million views, and I'm sure everyone has watched them. And if they haven't, um, you're missing out, and they will be in links in the show notes. But I would love to talk about emotional first aid, because as I said, you brought up that concept in 2014, far before this mental health kind of conversation became a lot more popularized. What is emotional first aid? Well, Emotional First Aid actually came out first as a book. The TED Talk I did was based on the book. Um, and that book came out actually in 2013. In other words, it sold on proposal in 2011. Um, so it's, it's, been a, it's been a while. I remember when I came up with the idea of Emotional First Aid, I was thinking about, you know, we sustain emotional wounds and psychological wounds just as frequently as we do physical ones. And they have small little treatments, the research was telling me, that we can apply small little techniques that we can apply to soothe the pain and to address what we need to psychologically and and emotionally. But no one was aware of that. Those were research papers often written for the research community, not even for clinicians per se. And it occurred to me that, wow, we all have this medicine cabinet at home of ointments and bandages, and we should have one like that for emotional wounds, small little techniques and tricks that you can apply in those situations. And my immediate thought was, well, that's got to exist. Somebody must have written that. I mean, somebody must have thought to bring that to people in a very practical, granular way. And then I did my research and I was like, no, no, no one has. And there are all these studies that are coming out that are really very helpful. And so that's why I wanted to coin the concept and, and wanted to come up with ways of talking about it that are very specific. I'll just give one example. Like one of the things that that, that really riveted me early on is when I was looking at this experience of rejection, which is obviously related to heartbreak, but to many other things, because we would get rejected socially, we get rejected by colleagues when they go to drinks without us, they get rejected in many different ways. Couples have many rejections when, when you're expecting, you know, uh, sex to happen and it doesn't night after night, you can feel really rejected even within a marriage and a relationship. There was so much research on rejection. It was so fascinating. And yet people had no idea. So one of the things that was so fascinating was that people put in research, people put subjects through a rejection experience. We're not, that research is not people asking, oh, remember when you felt rejected, what was that like? It's actually recreating it in the lab. I, I won't quite say how here I do get into it in, in my book, Emotional First Aid, but they, they recreate the experience in the lab unbeknownst to the participants. So they're going through a rejection, which is obviously rigged and they don't know it. And then after they're feeling rejected, they're taken and given all these questionnaires and all these other things to kind of look at what happens. And one of the most amazing things was that it didn't matter who rejected you. That even if the people who rejected you were people you absolutely despised, it was painful. And even finding out that the people who rejected you are people you despise, like black subjects were told they're members of the Ku Klux Klan and Jewish subjects were told they're they're neo-Nazis, Finding that out didn't make the pain less. And then they even took it a step further in those experiments and actually told people, okay, you know what? This whole thing was rigged. Those were our our research confederates out there. The rejection actually nearly happened. They, They don't think poorly of you. They were just filling a role. So finding out that it wasn't even real doesn't make the pain go away. You're still smarting for a while after that. That is how tenacious rejection is in our brain at creating emotional pain. Now, when you know that, it is really useful 
because so many times we get rejected and we get, and it really stings. And we're like, I must be a real loser because I don't even like that person that much. Or you're going on a date with someone and you're about to say, you don't want to see them again. And they say it to you and your feelings are hurt. And you're like, what? I was going to do that first. You know, how is that possible? So, so, and then you start thinking it must be me. And it's no, no, it's not you. It's the brain. It's the wiring. And so knowing that is really important. Like for example, when a, when a child comes home, um, and like feel, oh, I didn't get invited to the party at school or people made fun of me or people don't like me. The first thing parents say is, oh, it doesn't matter what people think. But if you know this research, you will never say it doesn't matter what people think because that implies you shouldn't feel pain and I know you are. So you should always say like, it hurts when you get rejected. And the funny thing is it even hurts if you don't like the people. But you know, the best thing to do is to remind ourselves of who does like us and then set up a play date, have the kid's best friend come over that afternoon to hang out with them because that will just remind them of, nope, they are accepted, they are appreciated, they are loved. And that's the most important thing to do. You know, don't give them ice cream, don't you know, try and distract them, have them reconnect with a friend and in that moment and remind themselves of what they need to be reminded of. So this is why I wrote that book. I wanted people to very regular daily common life situations, the better understanding of what goes on in their minds, both consciously and unconsciously, and, and have tools they can use to not get ensnared in it, to be able to move on, to soothe the pain, to have the understanding. Oh, it's just so life affirming because obviously we all go through these feelings the whole time and also at all ages as well. You kind of, I always thought that, oh, when I'm grown up, <laughs> I'm not going to have rejected it. I won't have feelings. I won't have feelings when I grow up. <laughs> and one thing you write, which again, I thought was just, it really stuck out. And you say, uh, once we become convinced of something, it becomes very difficult to change our mind. Why do we become so entrenched in ideas we have about ourselves? Uh, because I thought that was, again, like, so true. Like, if you believe you're not enough, it seems irrelevant what people are trying to tell you. You are just committed to this idea you have about yourself, and it could be very negative. Right, and it's so unfortunate. And look, we, we, there, there are a variety of different reasons. There. One of them is the confirmation bias. And the confirmation bias is when we have a strong belief, we tend to over-notice, be overly aware of any kind of information, evidence, what we see around us that reinforces that belief. And we tend to be much less aware or overlook information and evidence that contradicts it. The example I give to people is like, if you just bought a new car, if you just bought like a red Audi, um, you will suddenly, oh, there's so many red Audis on the road. You wouldn't have noticed that before. But, but your, you know, your perception is now geared towards recognizing certain patterns that, that you're fo focusing on. When you believe you know, that there's something uh, inadequate about you or something negative about you, then you will, ah, you see, I don't have good luck. Here's where I don't have good luck. Here's where I don't have good luck. And all the ways in which you do get ignored. And, and so that's why when we have a certain belief, it gets fixed. And, and we have to note when that belief is negative because we are doing a massive disservice, our unconscious perceptions will steer us away from anything that contradicts it. So to replace those beliefs with a more positive one is really important. The only way you can do that is if it's true. You can't say to yourself, if you truly believe, say, that you're unattractive, you can't say to yourself, no, I'm beautiful, because it, it will not work to convince you if you don't believe it. You actually might be. But if you truly don't believe it, it's going to be very hard for you to convince yourself. So what you have to do is you have to go to the things you do believe about yourself that are positive. 
So rather than maybe it's hard to stand behind, I'm beautiful, can you say to yourself, I have beautiful eyes or I have a lovely smile? And if you're saying that to yourself, well, I have a lovely smile, I have beautiful eyes, then that is something that every time you see yourself in the mirror and you smile, you can go, oh, yeah, I do have a beautiful smile. And that will slowly begin to generalize and make you more comfortable with this idea of, yes, I am beautiful. Um, and I'm saying that because a lot of people have these negative perceptions and it is very easy to look at yourself in the mirror, find a flaw. I challenge somebody to not find a flaw. And then every time they look in the mirror, like some kind of special effect in a movie, it goes right into the floor and ignores every other part of you, even though that floor was microscopic. And so you have to be aware that we have certain mechanisms that can really be bad for our self-esteem and that we, we have to challenge them because they're usually incredibly inaccurate. And one way you would know that is that if you would think of your having a friend in that situation, would you say about her, she looked like you, that she's not beautiful, that she's a loser, that she's something or other? No, you would feel that oh, that's way over too critical, that's way harsh. But we apply that negative voice to ourselves way too freely. And this goes back to, again, the language point. And when you say we've got to fight for better mental health, because when mm -hmm. our opponent is that vicious and that mean and that strong and knows our weaknesses better than we know you know, them ourselves, like we've got to kind of like bring our entire army and kind of bring the energy to kind of fight that voice inside, I guess. You do talk about self-compassion a lot. And I think this also leads into your point about um, stopping emotional bleeding and kind of like bringing your positive like army immediately as quickly as possible in to the situations when the negative side is kind of like rearing its ugly head. What do you mean about kind of emotional bleeding and how can we, how can we patch it up quickly? Well, emotional pain is invisible. So, you know, we might really be hurting about all kinds of things or feeling bad about ourselves or feeling rejected or feeling like failures or whatever it is. And no one's is seeing it, but our thought process is perpetuating it. So we have to first stop the bleeding. We have to stop the negative thing in our head that is keep you know, that keeps hurting, that keeps reinflicting the wound or picking up the scab or whatever that is. And so it's important to catch it. Now, I'll get, you know, like one example that's really difficult is um, when we're feeling hopeless, that feels like there's a lead weight on our chest, that it's just, we, it's impossible to move both figuratively and literally. It's a very difficult feeling. It's very, very paralyzing. So, to recognize that that's a negative thing that's not good for us is important. But then we also have to recognize we have to bump out of that because that will really reinforce. And so the way you bump out of that is that you don't, okay, now I have to get up and run a marathon. It's going to be very difficult, but negotiate with yourself. What's one thing I can do that will be proactive? What's one thing I can do that will be a little bit hopeful? What's one thing I can achieve right now that will make me think that, you know, if I could do this, maybe I can do more. You really negotiate with yourself. You, you push yourself because any movement is counter to paralysis. So any movement would be best if it's moving you something, if it's doing something. You can't think of what to do. Do the dishes. That's productive. Do something that takes you out of helplessness, even if it's not in the same domain, because it'll generalize. It'll give you that feeling of, okay, I'm productive. I'm efficient. I'm effective. That can, feeling can generalize into the domain in which you need it to. 
What sort of things have you found to be most helpful in people building their self-esteem up? Are there kind of better forms of distraction than others? For example, is going for a walk better than something else? Like, are there kind of tips you've seen clients um, employ in their lives where there's been kind of really significant improvement? So, so for self-esteem, two big things. So one of them is self-compassion, really. So to really have an inner voice, just in a nutshell, self-compassion means treat yourself like you would a dear friend or somebody you really cared about. In other words, imagine a scenario where whatever you're feeling, whatever you're going through is what the friend is going through. What would you say to them? I promise you that will be 10 times, not 100 times more compassionate, kind, and supportive than what you're saying to yourself in that moment. But you need to be saying to yourself what you should be, what you would be saying to a friend. There's zero value add in being self-critical um, when you're feeling bad. So that's self-compassion. The other is self-affirmation. And I was implying this earlier. When we have to revive our self-esteem. We need to remind ourselves of what we bring to the table in that specific domain. If it's about heartbreak or if it's about we didn't get the job we wanted or we didn't get into the college we wanted and we're feeling bad about ourselves in whatever domain, we need to remind ourselves of what we actually do bring to the table. So if it's about heartbreak, for example, make a list of everything that makes you a really great uh, relationship prospect. And just that you know is true, like make a list of, like I said, you have beautiful eyes, you have a beautiful smile, you give the best back rubs, your, your, your scone recipe is unparalleled, uh, whatever it is, and make a list of that and, and make it a long list and then choose one of those items and write a couple of paragraphs about why that's a meaningful thing in relationships, why that's been appreciated in the past or will be in the future. And, and the writing is important, right? Because it's when you're actually... It takes a certain areas of the brain to generate the list, but the different areas of the brain to write. And so all you're doing there is you're creating more and more associations and reinforcing neural pathways that are positive, that remind you, oh yeah, I have all these great skills, not think of the one thing that I think the other person didn't like about me. Here are all the things that I like about me. And if it's the list that you made, that you know to be true, it's going to be effective. If it's just a generic, because the thing about positive affirmations, these are self-affirmations because you generate them about yourself in a way that you know is true. Positive affirmations to distinguish are the generic ones of I'm beautiful and I'm worthy of success and all of that. And the research shows they don't work because they fall outside of our domain of persuasion. We don't believe them. And if we don't believe them, they're not going to work. We're not going to believe I'm beautiful. We're going to believe I have beautiful eyes because I do. And that's important. So, so the self-affirmations really reminds you it's true. It resonates more deeply. The positive ones in the research, the only people they made feel better are people whose self-esteem is already high. So that's not useful. Guy, honestly, I'm going to listen to this interview back like, a million times. It's oh, just such so food for soul, brain, body, cell. Thank you so much. Where can people find you? And I'd love to hear um, about your new podcast, which I'm in a total addict to, um, Dear Therapists. So people can find me at GuyWinch, G-U-Y-W-I-N-C-H.com. Uh, even on my homepage, you'll have links to my three TED Talks. You'll have links to my uh, advice column. I write an advice column, a science-based advice column to TED called Dear Guy. Um, you'll find links there. I write a blog for Psychology Today. You'll find links there. And I do this podcast with Laurie Gottlieb, Dear Therapists. And what we like about the podcast, I'll just say one thing about it, is that you know, advice podcasts usually don't have actual therapists interviewing the person and having like a session with them. And what we do is that we'll read the letter to one another, then we'll analyze it as therapists do. So you get to be like a fly on the wall on a case consultation. Then we'll bring in the person and actually interview them and, and have a, a session with them. So you get to see what 
it's not exactly therapy, but what therapy can sound like, then we give them a task that they have to do within a week. And then we have them report back on what happened. So we give them the advice, but then we hear whether they implemented it and how that went and what happened at the end. And you hear all of that within one episode. And then we also unpack what happened at the end. And so within each episode, this is a very full arc of a, of a storyline. And what I think is useful about that is that A, it gives you a real window into what therapy is like, but B, even, I promise you, that even if the issue is not one that you're dealing with currently or have, you will learn something about yourself because that's what therapy and psychology is like. We, we talk in specific ways, but also in broad ways, and they're always takeaways. So you will learn something about yourself, I truly believe, in every episode. It's so brilliant. I've learned so much already, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Well, thank you again so much for your time. It's been just deeply insightful and you've taught us so many things thank you so much for having me it's been a real pleasure and thank you for such great interesting questions that's it for today thank you for listening of course it would be amazing and very appreciated if you wouldn't mind hitting subscribe and sharing this podcast you can find me at poppy jamie on instagram DM me questions or any guest suggestions. I'd love to hear from you. And also, if you have a moment, download Happy Not Perfect. It's my mindfulness app that helps you manage stress, anxiety, sleep, and ultimately makes you feel happier every single day in less than five minutes. See you next time. Sending you lots of love and energy. Till then. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.